Welcome to episode 434 of I Am Talk, your weekly fix in all things Iron Man. Right, team, welcome along to episode 434 of I Am Talk with Coach John Newsom and Bevan James. It feels like I'm still in Hawaii. Funny that. It feels Funny. like I'm still sitting in, in your apartment. Yeah. Gone back crazy. in time. We've gone in a time machine. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the construction is happening upstairs all week. It's yeah, still happening. still happening. Got a nice breeze. The girls are gagging to get to Turtle Beach, I'll tell you that. <laughs> you got the sleep well, of hands in you. This is going to be a short show. <laughs> this is going to be a short show. Well, luckily it's not because we've actually done a lot of the work for today's show. I Am Talk is proudly brought to you by... Coffeesofhawaii.com Tell you what, if you're in Hawaii the last few weeks, you would have nailed some of that Coffees of Hawaii. Extreme Endurance. Your Lactic Buffer. And Athlinks.com Social Networking for Endurance Athletes. Okay guys, so today's show is going to be a little bit different. We haven't really, John and I still are in Hawaii and we just thought we'll get a show done before we actually go, you know, while we're still in Kona. So... Uh, we've basically just got a few interviews, really, haven't we? We have. So we've got Marty Waters, who's a coach. Yep. He had, you said he had 11 hours. Seven. Well, I saw him late last night, or I mean a few weeks ago. Uh, when I saw um, Annie, Anne and uh, Tina. The how, did they, how did they go? Did they well, I only saw them still going out on the run. So there's yeah, still yeah. probably about another 20k to go on the run when I saw them. Yeah. Um, but they're looking happy. You know, they're yep. looking so very happy. Tina's the blind athlete. Yep. And. Uh, and then I saw Marty then, he said he had seven podiums. So. That's incredible. Yeah, that's incredible. So he's a, he's a coach from the States, um, old school, so he's got some great insight there. And then we'll have a fantastic interview with some guys from Clean Protocol. you hear about that. It's a new way of giving pro athletes and eventually age group athletes the certification that they're clean. Yeah, it's a in very terms, interesting discussion, in isn't terms it? Of no, it's not blood testing or anything like that. Uh, you, you, they'll explain it much better than I can, but it is absolutely brilliant, and those dudes... Now, we may even have another interview, but I can't remember if we saved another one, so if there's another interview yeah. in there, <laughs> be prepared, there might be another interview. So we're, we're going to pretty much get straight into it because the girls want to get to the beach. So, Jombo, let's put the interviews in. Let's start with uh, Clean Protocol, eh? Yep. Okay, Jombo, I was just saying that we've got a couple of new couple guests here today, and, uh, and, no. and we're not good at names at the best times, are we? No. And, and they even told me the names and I can't pronounce them. So well, I thought I'd get them to actually introduce themselves to me, to us. So, go first. Yeah, I'm Teague Chislovsky. I'm the founder of Clean Protocol. And then... And I'm Mike Brahavich. I'm a sports medicine doctor and head of science for Clean Protocol. And then call you Mr. Dr. B, is it? P. Dr. P. P. Yeah. Because otherwise it just train wrecks on the name. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the reason you guys are here is we had Jody Swallow around the other day and... She was still telling us that she's joined into your crew and we know nothing about what you're doing other than having a quick look at your website. The listeners will have absolutely no idea what you guys are all about. So maybe to start with, just give us a bit of a pricey overview on on what you guys are doing. Okay, so the Clean Protocol is really a, a, a program um, that's best described as trying to create some form of behavioural change program. In other words, what we're really trying to do is, is change sport towards clean sport for all. And the way in which we do that is um, we received a call from some of the top pros here in Hawaii, uh, and they asked us to come over here and to certify that they're clean. And the way in which we do that is a very um, scientific process that I'll let um, Dr. Mike talk about. But basically what we think is that sport is really simple. It's defined by rules. And when you play within those rules, 
it's available to everyone. And the best things can come out of sport, the people you meet, the relationships, you know, doesn't matter what language, what race, you know, what, what preference you have. Sport played within the rules is best for everyone. Mm. So my idea is really when sport's outside of the rules, what you're looking at is something, say, for example, with doping, you're looking at an entertainment, a freak show or um, a hobby, a pastime. It's something, I don't know what it is, but it's just not sport. Mm. So what we're trying to do is we looked at the entire problem and we know that there's very good measures out there in anti-doping, um, but there's also some problems around how effective um, some of those, those measures are. Mm. And so what we said is, okay, when you look at this whole problem, not as anti-doping, but turn it upside down and look at it as a, an approach to pro-clean sport, it gives you a great opportunity to use different tools to get to that point. So really, we're very lucky. We've been led by the clean athletes, um, invited in, and they're just taking a stand. And they're saying, this is our sport. We really feel strongly about the rules of our sport. We want to keep to that. And, uh, and we're, we're prepared to do anything to show that. So what's your, what's your background? So I'm a, I'm a retired lawyer, yeah. uh, a burnt-out uh, lawyer. Done <laughs> the yards. Yeah, done, it did the yards as a corporate commercial taxation lawyer, 15 years hard labour. But before then, I um, sailed uh, in an Olympic class called 49ers. Um, uh, I sailed, uh, we actually won our Olympic trials in 2000. Uh, but um, after 2000, I found myself in the position of straight back into the law, um, worked to become a partner, everything that entailed. And, uh, and then just in the last few years, I decided to take a, a break and I found that within a very short period of time, I didn't want to go back and do law. What I wanted to do is actually do something that was, you know, not, not make a difference, but do something with the skills that I developed that's kind of a little bit more useful than what I was doing before. So obviously there is some drug testing out there and that varies from country to country. It varies with what WTC does, what um, Australia does, what New Zealand does, what UK does. Um, so there's some testing out there in place. What is it actually that you guys are doing? Sure. So the, um, the testing we're doing is uh, the first step of it is actually using the self-selection of athletes. So for example, um, out there, if your only choice is to do the test, then everybody has to do it. And so the first advantage we take of is when we're using a voluntary process, less people who are cheating are going to self-select into a process that they might not pass. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's our first mechanism that's in place. And then, but that's not enough, obviously, because there's a lot of groups that you can just, you know, join up and say, say what you want. So then we have to add in some type of way to cross-validate or verify what's going on. And so the test that's probably going to get the most attention that we're using is what's called ocular motor deception testing. And this is a type of test that looks for deception. And it's based on the concept that when you, um, when you have uh, deception involved, it changes the way your, your cognitive load happens. And that changes the way your eyes fix and track, the way your pupils dilate and contract. And it's been validated in the lab setting. So the, the standard in the lab is to set up what's called a mock crime experiment. And that's what these researchers did. These are researchers, um, multiple PhDs uh, based out of the University of Utah with over 30 years of experience in the field of deception uh, detection. 
And they had very good results from this study where they found 85% accuracy for this mock crime scenario. So there was a TV program on at the moment, isn't there, that sort of looks at facial recognition stuff. Sure. And is it sort of similar, remotely similar to that? Right. So the idea is to go after things that you can't actively control. So, for example, um, when we're speaking, we're controlling our mouth and everything. But on the other hand, some of the things I'm doing with my eyes, whether my pupils are dilated because mm -hmm. of what I'm thinking or are they constricted, um, where my eyes move around, I can't control all that. And so those are the subtle little things that are looked for, and with the idea being that because you can't manipulate them, then it's much easier to get at the, the truth that's below. So, wait, is it, so this is uh, kind of like FBI kind of stuff, isn't it? <laughs> what you're saying? Well, that's, that's their goal. Yeah, uh, and yeah. I should say the, comp the, the company who provides the technology actually has some of the retired FBI, senior FBI officers who are seeing this as a real leap forward. It's a very new technology, and they're investing their own money into this to roll it out in places like Latin America for anti-corruption and anti-money laundering. You know, it's, got a, it's, it's not a perfect test in the sense that a specific test has to be built, yeah. but that's why it's so useful for in the doping context with what we're doing. Our test is specifically developed around certain doping activities that we're trying to work out. Is somebody credible or otherwise? Um, I know, because when I mentioned, I think it was to Phil, that you guys were coming around, and I, and I saw there was, uh, yeah, we just scanned it, and it, it looked like a lie detector test. Um, mm -hmm. And we know that, having read the book about cyclists, sure. they've been able to fudge yeah, those tests absolutely. pretty easily. Yeah. Yeah. So it's completely not that. It's completely different to that. Right, so what we're going with is... What we did was look for from a, just a totally blank slate. What's out there? What can we do? And the core thing in, that you can link all doping activity to is that it's a form of deception. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't matter if it's EPO or testosterone or human growth hormone, GW1516. You can just keep going, right? You don't need an individual test for all one of those things if you go for the core underlying thing. Mm -hmm. And also, unlike those biologic tests, deception doesn't leave your body. Until the truth comes out, <laughs> yeah, true. right? So yeah. there's some massive advantages. There's some obviously some bigger challenges to it, but there's some massive advantages when you start going after the deception instead of trying to chase all these different whatever the latest and greatest mm -hmm. substance is. What, what, what would like? Because I imagine you know, like lie detector tests. You know, you read Todd Hamilton's book and talks about how he learned how to. And I, I know you guys are obviously trying to find a higher level, mm -hmm. but legally, you know, like if, if, if does your kind of method stand up? Legally, as in... Um, like the, you, at least so you the, catch me. Yeah. And then I said, well, whatever. Yeah. It's a piece of crap, you know. My eye's following, you know. Can you take it to court and actually prove... So, so I think le it, it won't stand up to um, the rigour of a legal court. Yeah. Okay, so that isn't what this about, is about. What it's about is trying to discern who is credible okay. in their sports performance in relation to doping activities and who is not. And it's not the only measure we use. So before, an, before we even see an athlete, ordinarily, they've already given us a, a whole um, host of what we call at-risk data. So injuries, TUEs, supplements, contractual termination dates, all the pressure points that are on athletes that, that might want to bend the rules. In addition to that, we put them through a range of psychometric tests, which have been individually validated in published journals. And they're things that do things like um, rate somebody's 
um, attitude towards doping. So if you think about this whole model, when you have somebody that participates in a doping behavior, going and trying to find that behavior is really hard. You have to get them at the right time and be looking for the right thing. Mm. It's akin to looking for the grain of sand on the beach. Mm. So what we've done is gone back and said, before you get to that behavior, what have you got? Well, the psychologists say you've got intentions, but before intentions, you've got attitudes and beliefs. And so I looked around to see what, what's the best method of testing somebody's attitude towards doping in sport. Mm. And we're using that scale as a broad range measure. And then we use three others because, of course, it's a self-report test. And it's very easy to be deceptive and present a false impression of yourself to the world mm. when you're voluntarily giving information. So we need to cross-check that as well. But the unique thing about clean protocol that nobody's really done with any um, rigor is not only do we do the athlete, but they have to nominate their entourage and, and we need their entourage to go through those same tests as well. So by entourage, the people that affect their sports performance, their coach, their doctor, their physio, their mum, their dad, whoever, their training partners. So in this way, what we're addressing is Doping is not a problem with the product. It's not a problem with any individual. It's a social problem. It becomes a systemic problem when it becomes part of the culture of a sport. Mm. And so what we have to do is approach that from a similar angle. We can make a difference when we can approach this as a social program for behavioral change. Get the athletes on board and start moving them in the right direction. And so obviously, while you don't necessarily have legal legs at this stage, it would be more social pressure to, that, that would be the and key I'll, that would yeah, influence. And I'll try and set the context here. Is, you know, one of the things, that, the questions that people are going to have is, is, it, is the test bulletproof? Is the system bulletproof? Um, and obviously the answer is no, there's no perfect test. But when we're looking at social change, it's not about any one individual. It's about this, the group. It's about the network. It's about how that whole group behaves together. Mm -hmm. And so what, if we can meet a standard where we can start putting names and faces to the athletes that are clean, and we can take away the, the dilemma in the prisoner's dilemma, right? Because now mm -hmm. the people who are contemplating cheating can't just say, I think everybody's doped, so I'm not hurting anybody. Mm -hmm. And they also can't just justify to themselves that I'm not hurting any specific person because now they know. And so the test is, is very important to have credibility, um, but it's the first step in that process of driving the social change. And when Teague's mentioning these other psychometric tests, are they the right thing? Are they this perfect test for any one person? Absolutely not. But when we're looking at these networks of, you know, the social connections, you can start to get the sense of the heat map of where that vulnerability lies and, and where the strengths are. And you can start building off of that, which is something that we saw as just not being even approached yet. And so that's what we're really trying to focus on. So what's the sort of process? So, you know, if, if there's pro athletes listening to this or there's coaches of athletes or people, yeah, what's the process for the athletes to, to get into this program and what do they actually have to go through? Very simple. Um, www.cleanprotocol.org. Uh, it's a not-for-profit organization, so .org is e easy to remember if you can remember the clean protocol. Mm -hmm. And you'll find just a step-through process there for athletes to fill out an application. And then um, we take that application in. Of course, we can only test at events where we are. Mm -hmm. At this stage, it's funded by just private 
savings. Mm. So um, we're limited with exactly what we can do. But there's two mechanisms that we hope we're, we're activating with athletes um, and the stakeholders of sport. The first one is the social change. But the next one is, is for every athlete as an individual who puts themselves forward and who we deem to be credible in their sports performance. What we hope is that the commercial interests of sport will see, if I've got two athletes, one that has this standard and puts, has put themselves voluntarily up to the highest standard of credible, clean sport, and another athlete, and they're both achieving about the same, we would like to think if normal rules of economics apply, that the commercial interest should favour the lowest risk path. Yeah. So in this way, by social and slight commercial changes, we, we should be able to create a shift, and that's what we're trying to do. The next big question is, what if we've got a, a, somebody who's been a doper before? And I think it's very important to note, this is not about exclusion. We're not about catching cheats. What we're about is involving people in the program and trying to get people to comply with the rules of sport. Now, th that makes it very difficult for us because it means that dopers might try and game the system. Mm -hmm. So we have to be on our game and we think that we're now at the point with the science to be able to discern the difference. And so we have to set our thresholds very tightly. That also means that we may on occasion have a clean athlete who, who we just can't say is credibly clean. But we have a process by which they can step up to the highest standard and what we say voluntarily criminalise um, any form of doping if they then want to go on seek legal advice after a you know a brief period of consultation and sign a statutory declaration or a statement under penalty of perjury yeah. they're the very things that the Lance Armstrongs yeah. and the Marion Joneses won't do yeah. so which which is basically you go to jail if you if you're going to lie yeah exactly because it, it's not a private contract between us as an organisation and the athlete, it, it's actually, it's an offence against the entire justice system. It's contempt of, or the equivalent of contempt of court. You're bringing the court system and the justice system in every country relies on people giving uh, truthful testimony at key times. Now, we don't like athletes having to go into that position, but if our systems um, can't validate someone and it's entirely possible, but they still say they're clean, that's the final step. So, so in this way, we can welcome in everybody and we hope that even people that would be dopers can see that for the first time that, and this is the big thing, um, in Kona, we will have some athletes on the start line who we know to be um, credibly clean. Mm. And so it's not, it's not as easy for would-be dopers to say everybody's doing it. This is just about levelling up the playing field. Which is the, the again, it's Sorry. actually, you know, everyone who cheats needs to see themselves as being essentially, you know, a, a good person. And it's easy to do if you can reduce the consequences on, or minimise the victim. This is called moral disengagement. And it's also one of the, the psychometric scales that we test for, somebody's propensity to do that in a sporting context. So... What, we, what, we, what we've done is just looked at the psychology, the studies on cheating, and looked at the overall issue and said, okay, how are we going to credibly move this forward as a small organisation and, uh, and try and build support? And triathlon's a fantastic sport to do that in. Can I ask, what, what kind of resistance are you experiencing? There's, uh, look, I think um, there, there's been quite some resistance. Uh, what we're doing is new and different, 
And, uh, and it's hard for people to know who we are and what we're doing and what we're about. The two main questions, you know, ah, this, you know, this doesn't work, it's just another lie test or, or whatever. I don't think they realise how the science is being used and why we can apply tighter thresholds when you're coming from that pro-clean approach, not anti-doping, you know. When you don't have to catch cheat, when you're not going to end somebody's career, you can do something very, very different, and that's what, that's what we're doing. Just let's say, who's most credible to the best of our ability? Who's, who's presenting without deception when they're doing the ocular motor test? Mm. You know, that's, that's really what it's about. But resistance comes because new is different and people assume sometimes that different's worse. Mm. Um, you know, people, may have, listeners may have uh, read Twitter and there's various comments, but on the whole, it's very positive. I think people don't know the quality of the athletes we've got involved. Mm. Two of the top five men from last year are now certified clean protocol. Mm-hmm. So we're, you know, we're getting traction right at the very front end of the sport. Yeah. The numbers aren't large, but the quality is excellent. And it's exactly where you want to see. If you're clean, you really want people to know and you want to stand out. But you also want to say, let's clean up our, our whole sport, you know, mm-hmm. and let's let, let that sort itself out. Have you, have you watched uh, you know the cycling and seen a lot of the the denials the denials and say athletics and are you just looking at it going I can tell you guys are just <laughs> fudging everything you say yeah I mean obviously that's been a big that's been not just have I seen it that's been the norm right I mean it it's through you know starting wherever it was through the 90s when things got totally out of control it's that's the norm of every single interview every single time an athlete is talking it's they've been basically deceptive. Mm. And so that's been uh, the norm. And one of the things that we really wanna do is change that norm. We wanna bring the norm back to being the honest person talking. Mm. And it's the rare case that you have somebody deceiving you. I think Mike's being humble because he's, <laughs> he's working, he's worked um, in a great length um, on anti-doping projects in Colombia of all places. So if you take cycling as perhaps one of the most dirty sports and some people would see Colombia as being one of the most troubled countries when it comes to drugs and the like, uh, Mike's been involved with a program there. Uh, you know, so clean protocol extends out to programs like that. And also Mike's done a, a lot of work on all this power based analysis around cycling and the tour, etc. as well. So he's being very humble, but he's done an awful amount of work there as well. Have you had many people fail? Um, Without naming their names. But. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the way the program works is we actually don't disclose failures. Okay. Okay. And, and I think there's a process that we work people through to try and get that compliance and that change. Yeah. So we have had some results where we couldn't say that they're um, that they're credible and we would be offering them the chance to go and, you know, step up to the next level if yeah. they chose to. Um, that doesn't mean to, we can't draw an adverse inference against those people um, and, and nobody should at this stage. Um, but it's actually showing that there is a level of discrimination and determination going on. There's a selection that is around credibility and it's because it's voluntary, again, we're going to get some athletes who most likely are probably clean, but they might fail the test, and then we just set them on this path. Is that, is that a risk to your product? But because, like, if I'm a good guy and I'm not cheating, and I go, but there's a chance that I can get done, 
you know, like, does that discourage, is that kind of a barrier that you guys need to overcome because, you know, like, if let's say I do, and I, you know, I, yeah. you know you're sure I can go to the next level, but, and everyone else around me is all clean, and I'm the guy who hasn't, and I know I'm not cheating, that, that's a pretty tough situation. I think, I think you're right. It, you know, every individual has to weigh the risks of their own um, actions. Yeah. But what I would say with our program is that it's relatively low risk that if you're, like Mike gave the example of 85%, yeah. so we're talking about a risk, maximum risk of about 15, um, there's a very good case to say that that could actually be less in a real yeah. test environment. And what we've found with um, the deployment of the technology this week has been we're getting a very, very good technical response right in the area where we want it and without giving away too much more about how how the test works the tests are really working and we're very happy with where that's at so but i think they'll evolve too as time goes on ah yeah i mean this is this is really so the way the clean protocol came about was you know we really just wrote a standard and put it out on the internet for a couple of years um and invited every expert on anti-doping or anyone that we could that we knew of to make comment And we took on board the criticism. But the thing was, is because we're not really anti-doping, there's no experts in the area that we are. Mm. So it's been a very difficult process to build that credibility and to lower that risk. Mm. But I think what the reason perhaps, and maybe it's a question for the athletes that have come forward, but from what I'm hearing from them, is they're balancing the risk of a false positive with our arrangement with the current existing anti-doping and the consequences that that has for sport. Mm. So when they're evaluating that risk, they're preferring to go with this much lower risk of coming and joining in with our program and potentially the benefits that it may yield for them. Well, one of the problems with doping is that, you know, the drugs are always ahead of the testing right now in the current model, isn't it? You know, like, you listen to the interviews of all the guys, uh, George Hemp, George Hemp, what's it? Yeah, apparently he did 200 tests and 100 of them he was on drugs, you know, and so there's always this thing about, well, they're actually ahead of the testers, and so this kind of protocol, you know, hopefully can address that kind of, you know, the way that the drugs are ahead of the system. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right, and that's why we stepped back and rethought it, because when you're when you're looking for a substance, you're looking for a symptom of the problem. You're not looking actually for the problem. And so the symptoms come and go. So EPO in your body, it's, you know, it's there for a period of time and then it's gone, but the problem is still there, right? Mm-hmm. And in contrast to that, what we're looking for is addressing the actual problem. We're actually trying to go for the, you know, the social failings, I guess, basically, to, to make that change. And when we look at the... Um, you know, it's, it's very clear once you kind of get that in your mind that testing for the deception, testing for that problem is really the way to go because it's not specific to any one substance. You're not chasing the latest and greatest. You're not trying to deal with these um, time windows, you know, of the microdosing and things like that. So what we have, again, is like, you know, the deception, it's there until the truth comes out. So right there, we opened up that window and now there is no microdosing deception, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's your you're deceptive. Mm-hmm. And um, so that is a huge advantage to take, you know, to, to seize on because now you can approach things. And for example, one of, one of the big issues is, do you guys know of, you know, any test that looks for 
a coach who has doped an athlete or encouraged an athlete to dope or pressured mm-hmm. an athlete to dope. Yeah, is yeah. is there one? No. I mean, right? No? Yeah. So Other than if the athletes have been, it's more the stigma if they've been busted in the past, but not, yeah, not a test. How long, um, so say someone gets certified as, you know, they're clean, they're clean as, as per your sort of um, protocols, how long does that last? And because I would imagine in some instances attitudes would change um, because, you know, say if I take the Australian cyclists, you know, when, I remember when they first started going to the tour, they were getting their asses kicked for years and all of a sudden they kept up. Um, and I would imagine in some situations that might happen if a new pro all of a sudden thinks the playing field has become uneven. Well, I think it's yeah. the thing is that often athletes do go on with high ethics and then, you know, when they realise... So that's a great example of the importance of mapping the social response to attitudinal change. And so with more data on that type of thing, you should be able to pick the trend and identify the hotspot, Australian cycling in your example. And then, and this is a great example of why our program, we hope to provide the data back to WADA and WTC if they want to use it. So that if we're doing our job right, we're almost like the missile guidance system yeah. and we're just showing where the where the, the hot areas might be and where the clean areas ought to be. Mm-hmm. What they do with that is entirely up to them. But we just see that both systems are complementary because we're coming from opposite ends, one from the clean, one from anti-doping, both with a common objective. And how often would you expect athletes to get recertified? You know, yeah, so to answer yeah. the question about how long does it last, it's a great question. So... Um, the good thing about our test is we can turn them around very, very quickly. So, you know, most of the guys tested on Wednesday had results out last night for them. Okay. Um, so we can we can even shorten that turnaround. So it's a very effective measure of getting the result back to the athlete. Um, I think that's a, a huge benefit. So once they're certified, we would say that prov- um, providing they meet the conditions of the clean contract, so they enter into a contract, which is really just to comply with the rules of sport. Mm-hmm. So whilst they're doing that, it's still in place. But we hope to be able to be resourced and able to go out and retest them probably biannually. Every six months we think would be yeah. perfect. And it gets harder with larger populations, but because of some of the measures we're using, they're much more scalable. And the way that we're going to try and keep our costs down as an organisation is when we test, the athletes come to us. We're not sending testing guys out to Tenerife in Spain or, you know, um, to, out to Colombia or some weird corner of the world. We just go to the major events and say, here we are, if you'd like to participate, we'd love to have you involved. Um, and, uh, and in that way, we can keep the, the organisation very lean and the, the, any surplus going back into promoting clean sport down through the chain. We started with the pros. We'd love to talk to the age groupers. We'd love to, those age groupers to go back to their clubs and we'd like it to, to actually change sport. So obviously long-term, the, the, you know, I imagine this is very much kind of step three in your 100 street plan, you know, like uh, long-term... It is to get more and more people involved. So, because obviously it's that kind of snowball effect that the more pros you can get involved, then the more other pros want to feel they're involved. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And one of the things we look at is so, you know, internally we have the the Converse test, the ocular motor deception test, as sort of a way to to um, calibrate our other metrics against and to basically use our other more scalable tests to be able to reach a much larger population. And 
again, this is based on the social change. So, yes, is it perfect for any one per? You know, or question if it's is it perfect for any one person? No. But when we look at the population as a whole, we should start getting some really good data, and it's indirect data. But with the explosion of um, data science as a field, yeah. it's really incredible what they're doing with um, machine learning. Like one example, and this is not directly tied, but it's the same type of techniques that you use to analyze complex data. They've now mapped the the uh, bottom of the ocean, the ground, from measuring the water at the top. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just mind-blowing. And it's because they figured out how to get the noise out from the little tide changes and the waves, and they're looking at the effect of gravity warping the water to be able to map out what the surface of the ground is. And so data science is just so, it's exploding. Yeah, it is. So you can take these tests that people previously thought, oh, this is, you can't use it this way. But you can start generating these bigger data sets and use these new techniques that are developing to, to really, I think, punch through some of the, the mystery involved in where, where is, you know, where, what's the prevalence of doping? Mm-hmm. I, can I just yeah. say, our data collection, so I tried to work it out, but we're doing four tests. Uh, each one can have up to 30 questions, but then that goes out to an entourage that m- there might be three or four other people. Yeah. So let's say that you're really looking at maybe 16 to 20 um, tests before we even get them in for the ocular motor. The ock motor is collecting 60 pieces of data a second. So we end up with about, I worked out, I think it's around about 8 million pieces of data being uploaded. And we, we're storing that for further use. So, there, you know, there's, there's this great data exercise going on that, like Mike says. So the bigger the pie, the more, the more insight you gain. Yeah. Exactly. Um, are you able to name names of people that, that are, are currently certified as clean or anything like that? Because um, I did get, uh, I think Jodie, she, she did mention a couple of cyclists, and I was like, oh, that's pretty impressive if you've got some of those guys on here. Um, and sure. I, as you said, I, I And know. obviously there's something they'll put on their website, like the yep. badge of honour they want to wear, really, that's what you're looking for, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, so so we definitely can um, go through the names, that, and this was as of um, this morning. Yeah, um, so from this weekend's race. Was this, yeah. yeah, okay, great. Yeah. Right, right, so, so there's still actually... Uh, test results that aren't back yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but what we have so far is, uh, oh boy, I'm going to mess up names. Uh, <laughs> James, James Kanama, yeah, uh, yeah. TJ Talaxon, yeah. Andrew Starikovic, yeah, yeah. well. Luke McKenzie, yeah. uh, Harry Wiltshire, yeah. uh, Daniel Hawksworth, and Mary Beth Ellis. Right. Right. So, you know, all, all went through the um, clean protocol steps. And we were able to, with our technology, find very good signals of credibility in sport. So that, you know, we think that is kind of amazing. And and you said that the pros asked you here this time? Exactly, yeah, I think, um, so like I said, you know, we created the clean protocol, um, put it up on on the internet, solicited responses from every corner of the globe that we could get. Before it was even created, it was in consultation with all sorts of scientists and PhDs around the world to give input, and it was done on the back of reading all the literature I could find, um, specifically looking at new things that hadn't been applied. One of the interesting things is a lot of the actual science came from links straight off the WADA site, mm-hmm. and, but because it's using the social sciences it's very difficult to use in the particular applications they look at. And when I spoke to some of the professors who'd done the work on that and even been involved in the the funding process for some of those studies, when I asked why weren't they being used, they looked at me 
in this way of we don't know, we wish they kind of were. Okay. So when I had that kind of response, it, it really, you, you felt like you were, you were on the right track. Okay. It's just that somebody had to look at it from a different point of view. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's, that's kind of how it came together. Anything else awesome. you want to add? Obviously, your website? I think we're given the website. I mean, you know, people follow a little on Twitter. Yeah. Um, uh, not too big on social media because we normally <laughs> copper caning. But, um, <laughs> Avoid it like the plague. Yeah, yeah. but, um, uh, yeah, I, I've had, uh, I found out what Fast Twitch was really about this week. Yeah. Uh, it seems to be uh, a Fast Twitch is a, a fibre which responds with um, uh, great, uh, violence and elasticity against anybody that enters that domain. <laughs> so, um, but look, our, our website's uh, cleanprotocol.org, and uh, yeah, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook, all the usual. But I would say it's not so much about us, it's really about Correct. following those clean athletes. Yeah. You know, yeah, they're, they're the ones that um, deserve attention. Follow them, ask them why they're doing this, ask them how they found the test ask them about what it means for them and, and where their message can go. Uh, and let's hope that we can all move sport that little bit cleaner. Yeah, love your work, mate. Awesome. Appreciate your time. And it's, uh, yeah, definitely get you guys back on at some stage because it's, uh, it's an area that's going to be uh, expanding. It's interesting. Yeah. yeah, no, I really appreciate you guys having us. And obviously this is just the beginning of a discussion and we're excited to see where it goes. You know, this, this is just the first step. So really appreciate it. Yeah, cool. Good work, guys. Great. Thank you very much. Uh, Extreme endurance. Tell you what, you were popping that stuff last week, weren't you? I was. And one thing, I was, you know, through this last month, never even remotely got a chance of getting sick. And I think a big part of that was the. Which is a big thing coming from New Zealand uh, winter. Yeah. You know, like it's sure one thing not to get sick. I was talking to someone after the race, we would have heard the interviews a few weeks ago, and they're saying the reason I did well was because it was the first time I had been healthy. Mm for a period of time leading up to a race. So I was certainly pumping the immune boost on a daily basis. You know, I'm pretty slack with pills at some stage, but the last month I've been very diligent, three in the morning, three at night, and just making sure I'm on it. And it's made a big difference to staying healthy. So check that out, immune boost. Go to xendurance.com. Remember to use the promo code IMTALK5 and get five bucks off your order and you're away laughing. Don't always forget the, the traditional product as well, Extreme Endurance, which yeah. helps you for your recovery, helps you train better the next day. ExtremeEndurance.com. Rock and roll. So I've got, I've got two people here with me right now. They're both from uh, the Challenge Organization. And I've got Zibi. Is it Zibi? Yes, yes sir. Zibi. Zibi Schlufczyk. Zibi Schlufczyk. Pretty easy, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. For a guy who can't say names that well. And I've got Vix. How you going, Vix? I'm Victoria Mario. Oh, sorry, sorry. This is Victoria. That's it. Vix is fine. Vix is good. Hey, so um, these are the two kind of people representing Challenge here this week, and I suppose we'll start with you, Vix. Um, Kona Week's obviously a pretty big week. I know this isn't your race, and it isn't really your week to shine, but you know, what, what's, what's the importance of Challenge being here this week? It's an amazing opportunity to catch up with everyone. Um, everyone's here, the athletes, the industry. Um, a, lot of, you know, a lot of friends are here as well. So it's just a really good chance. We're all on one little Pacific island in the middle of the ocean. Um, and yeah, so we have back-to-back meetings all week and uh, it's, it's a very productive week for us. Zibi, you know, like the, the organisation seems to be making big steps forward in the last period of time. And obviously with Bahrain coming up, but it's taking that next level. Is, is it very much just a slow progression forward or does it seem to be that you, or it seems from the outside at least that, you know, there seems to be a bit more of a push recently. You know, can you tell us a little bit about where the business is at and where you guys are thinking of heading maybe? Well, we have enjoyed a tremendous development over the last two and a half years. We are, you know, truly global series. 
carrying the real values of the triathlon sport with 42 races in 18 countries across the globe. And yeah, we are driving our strategy moving forward. We will definitely launch championship events. We will definitely explore options, opportunities to launch new races uh, in the core challenge markets. And in a, we are in a very lucky situation. We're having over 160 requests from races wanting to join Challenge Family, which is showcasing us that the impact uh, we have made on the on the industry on the on the uh, sport of triathlon is uh, quite significant and people really really uh, searching for um, you know the real values in sport and i think we are, we are delivering those there was always the question of you know when's challenge going to come to north america and it's happened in the last kind of 18 months hasn't it how has that transition been and, and you know has it been successful what have been some of the challenges you guys have experienced in kind of trying to hit the north american market actually it was pretty easy i have to admit yeah as as you may know we we partnering with ref3 so it is a true partnership so we set up a joint venture all of the ref3 races will be renamed to challenge but their organization the team the way we deliver the races remain the same and um, you know we sat together with charlie Patton, uh, the owner of ref3 uh, discuss about uh, the future of the sport and it was a clear overlap between you know the aims the, the values we are representing as a challenge family in ref3 and yeah we shake our hands uh, put a piece of paper together and there we are we are having Right now, 11 races in in US only, and uh, two more in Canada. So it did seem like a good fit. Like it did always seem that referee had the similar kind of principles and values behind what they were doing in regards to the kind of races they were putting on. Uh, you know, like the the, the Ironman brand in the states seems to be, you know, pretty important. Like it's pretty important worldwide. But you guys have seemed to have been in Europe and New Zealand and, and kind of Asia, kind of been able to do well to bring that uh, exposure to another brand to the market. Do you think it's going to be a harder challenge to get that brand in North America just because WTC is so ingrained here? Well, actually, as you know, Challenge have been pretty Europe-centric for a number of years with the biggest triathlon uh, race in the world, Challenge in Roth, uh, which is you know, our, our diamond within the series. And uh, we had an amazing development in Europe. Uh, so if you, if you talk to Europeans, uh, we are on the same level as Ironman. And we just um, started to put our footprint in North America. And we are very convinced that uh, athletes, industry, media accept that there is a need for uh, alternative. And I think this is what we are, what we are expecting. Significant impact on the, on the triathlon world in North America. And very convenient that this will happen very quickly. Vix, Vix, you've got um, Challenge Bahrain coming up very soon, or kind of in a couple months. Um, Tell us a little bit about that, first of all, because obviously that's kind of, it is taking long-distance triathlon to the next level, at least for the pros. Um, maybe tell us a little bit about it and what the aims long-term are for you guys. Well, I mean, Bahrain, you're right. I mean, it's changing the face of long-distance triathlon. I mean, the, the prize purse is, is $500,000 US dollars. The winner, both male and female, takes home $100,000. And don't forget that, of course, being in Bahrain, they don't have taxes in Bahrain. So that actually elevates the prize purse to the richest in the world, regardless of the distance. Um, which is pretty cool. And, you know, the field is, it's, it's really, the question is who isn't racing rather than who is. The field is, is incredible. It's, I would say, probably the most prestigious field over the half distance that we've ever seen at any race. And, uh, and so, of course, that's a huge buzz for the age groupers as well. I mean, they're going to be racing alongside 
the creme de la creme, the who's who of triathlon. And, uh, you know, obviously challenge races, the way that we work it is, you know, the pros, they're there at the finish line to welcome the age groupers across the line. We have the pasta party where we have the age, um, the pros speaking. We've got a meet and greet with the pro athletes um, in the lead up to the race. So it's, it's really all about age group experience. There's been a lot of focus on the pro athletes for that race. But, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of um, age groupers coming from all over the world for it. And so we really want to make sure that that experience that we're offering the pro athletes is also exactly the same for the age groupers. In terms of just the whole experience, how they're met at the airport, you know, so they're traveling to a strange country, probably most of them have never been to Bahrain before, so they're met at the airport, so they can ask someone a question, where do I get a taxi from, is there a bus, do you know where this hotel is? Um, once they get to the hotel, there'll be transport provided between the, the um, race hotels and the expo area, the way we have registration, pasta party, all that kind of stuff. Um, the race packs are, I don't want to give too much away because we want a few surprises, but the, the race packs are pretty awesome. Um, just, yeah, un unbelievable. Uh, and um, yeah, we just, we just want people to go, go away from it going, wow. Are you guys calling this your your champs? Like, because I, I know that you know the question I've always asked Felix is, when are you guys doing a champs? And and I, and there's definitely talk and there's feel that you guys are thinking about putting a champs on soon. Uh, is this what you're going to be calling your champs at this stage? No, no, Bahrain. This year, Bahrain is, is purely a, a regular race. Um, but one mean race. One hell of a race. Yeah. Um, and what's also important about Bahrain is that it's also bringing triathlon to a new market um, his highness is absolutely passionate about the sport and he wants to share that passion with the people of Bahrain so there's a number of initiatives in place to encourage local participation um, a lot of the um, guys there they, they, they might do some swimming or they might you know run a bit but you know triathlon a lot of people have never done it before so we're, we're working really closely um, with them and to develop the sport and and, and create um, you know or promote an active and health, active healthy lifestyle um, to, to, to the region, um, it's, so it's 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 got it's got two two you know two very different different parts, but it's it's going to be really really amazing to see all these guys um, just get the triathlon bug and uh, hopefully they really enjoy it. So back to that kind of championship question, <laughs> but there is there's definitely word on the street right now that you guys are thinking about you know finally putting a, a challenge championship. It's such a weird thing because there's so many bloody world championships isn't there in our sport. But uh, you know, is this something you can talk about now? And if so, what kind of time frame? And is there any kind of small details you can give? Well, there is no question if. The question is when and how. I mean, there are several options we are having uh, right now for discussion. I mean, as we speak, <laughs> literally. Uh, so this could be you know, a World Series final, it could be a championships, it could be something what we, what we already experienced quite successfully in connection with uh, one of the governing bodies. Um, we know for sure that uh, the championships should be something what it's, as Challenge Family, it's inclusive, first of all, and second of all, it's also um, delivering everything what you expect from the championships, from you know experience at the pro level, experience at the uh, age group level, and truly developing the sport moving forward. So I think that's described quite well what we are aiming at. And in terms of timing, well, we know for sure that uh, instead of delivering average, we will rather wait another year or another two years. We want to have an extraordinary race, and you know we simply want to be a quality leader, and therefore. 
we need to have a quality championships. Well, it's definitely, you know, to this point, you guys have kept very kind of closed door kind of to the public. You know, we're not, we're not going to look, well, at this stage, we're not looking at doing it. And so obviously this is hopefully sooner more than later. And I think it's obviously going to be a pretty important thing for our sport. One of the discussions we've been having a lot forever in bloody Ironman and long distance triathlon is, is the importance of pros and how it's, their value seems to get diminished more and more. And, and, and Challenge definitely seems to be a little bit more proactive at looking after pros. How, what's, what's your long-term plan in regards to making sure the pros still stay an important part of the sport uh, and not get neglected as, as it becomes a bigger thing? Well, I, I have to say this drives me nuts to see in a sport like triathlon, pros are getting neglected from other organizations. Uh, you know, as for challenge, I can say we are paying at all of our races a significant amount of money. In total, we spent a year over three and a half million US dollars on the pros. Every race is having at least 25,000 um, euros, which is 35,000 US dollars price purse on a half distance and 50,000 euros, 75, 70,000 US dollars on a full distance as a minimum. And then we have a number of races where we spend more money. And for me, pros are pinnacle of our sport. Without pros, the sport is becoming yeah, another, another something without a profile. Uh, so therefore, pros are very, very uh, far on the top of our list. But nevertheless, uh, bread and butter of every, every race is, is, is the age group. And as we said, our, our focus is, is always uh, drive, driving in, in two directions, uh, pro and, and, and age groupers. One of the problems John and I often talk about on the show is that the appeal of long course triathlon is, is a TV sport. Now I know in Germany you guys, you know, you get great coverage for road and, and those sort of races and in New Zealand you tend to get pretty good coverage as well, don't you? Um, is, is, is the, obviously that limits our sport in some ways and is, are there ways that you guys can see that we can become a bit more mainstream and getting our product out there to the public which obviously will bring in a bigger marketing dollar and more money into our sport which then flows on to all areas? Well, first of all, we, we, we need to sort out basics. Basics means a simple report on the race coverage from from a social media standpoint as well as for from live stream standpoint. And of course, you know, long distance triathlon is, is due to the duration quite of quite a difficult product. We are working with uh, Peter Henning, 18 times Emmy Award winner, pulling together programs for us pulling together the edits from all of the races and we're just developing step by step. I think with Bahrain we will see a significant change in terms of a live stream, live coverage. I think that's what we need to deliver. If we want to go with the sport outside of the of the industry, uh, endemic industry, uh, we, we, we have to be so much better on delivering a TV product. And there is uh, several ways. I mean, we have seen amazing products from Peter Henning which is encouraging and, 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 and touching a lot of uh, you know, people who are not into the sport. And I think this is the way moving forward. We just need con- consistency and we need a quality. So, so I suppose then, you know, what are some of the kind of, the, let's start with the challenges you guys uh, presented with over the next period of time that you guys see you have to oversee? Hard question? Okay, this way. <laughs> challenges, well, this is why, why we call ourselves challenge. Every day is a challenge. And of course, you know, we we still uh, talking about uh, triathlon. We are still a very small sport. So I think growth of the scale of the sport, growth of the of the reach out of the sport, it's a, it's a one of the critical things. And I think it's everyone playing an important role within the puzzle. Athletes, you you know, you mentioned the pro athletes. I mean, uh, if if I see how many 
pro athletes are carrying a license and how many behave like a pro, that's a quite a big difference. I think media is playing a critical role to build the sport, to grow the cake. And uh, of course, industry. And we as a, as a race organization, you know, have have an important role as well. Therefore, you know, every day is a challenge. And, and I think scale of the sport, it's uh, the biggest one. You know, like it's, it's you know, like I think uh, I remember when Wanaka was the second challenge race that kind of hit the market. So that was what eight, nine years ago, was it? Yeah, yeah, so nine years ago. So, you know, and, and now look where it's at. You know, it's a pretty great, big, you know, pretty big machine now. And uh, I know at the time I did wrote, you know, the, the experience I had when I went to wrote was just this real sense of, and, and it was really driven from Felix, wasn't it? You know, and the family at least, and that whole sense of. It's just for the people, you know. Every like, even I remember just walking around Felix the day he, he kind of took me through a recce one day, and even just little things like the colour of the tables, and you know, they had to matter because it made the experience matter for the for the runner, for the person doing the event, and and also their families. It seems to be you guys have done a pretty good job of not losing what was important as you have scaled. How have you been able to do that, and how do you make sure you maintain that as you become this bigger beast? Well, I think the the. The day that we lose that that X factor, if you like, is the the day we we all go home. Um, so it's never going to happen. Um, that's what challenge, whatever challenge event you go to. There's there's a certain intangible essence about it that is, and it becomes from the inclusivity. Zibi's already mentioned, you know, we're inclusive. Um, it's not just about turning up, racking your bike, racing, going home. That's, that's such a small part of the whole experience. We put a really strong focus on, not just for the athletes, but also the volunteers, the spectators. I mean, no athlete can get to the start line without the support um, of their friends and family. And we respect that. So we have a whole journey, you know, that involves, you know, in, in Roth this year, we had a women's only race. Um, two and a half thousand women. Um, yeah, 5K run. Um, previously, those guys, they, they couldn't be involved in the event. They, they don't want to race 226K, um, but 5K with a really cool goodie bag. And, you know, the dads were all there, you know, holding holding the babies, so to speak. And it was it was awesome to see. It really was fantastic. We have charity fun runs, you know, the kids race, you know, involving the children. So it really is a celebration of sport. Um, and that's really important. And I think, you know, when, when we're looking at new locations and when we're looking at working with new partners, it's really important that they share the same ethos. They share the same passion. They're not just there to make a quick dollar. They're there to enrich people's lives and help them achieve their goals. And I mean, you know, Felix, you know, I mean, the whole, you know, and his, his dad before him and obviously Alice and Catherine, you know, that whole, that passion, that dedication, um, the fact that when you turn up at a race, all our race directors are accessible. You can, you go to Roth, Felix has, you know, 5,000 athletes to look after, you can always stop him, shake his hand, say hi. You know, he's so accessible. And that's the same for all our race directors. You know, they really, you know, they really care about the athletes. They want everyone to feel a real, I mean, you know, without wanting to sound cliche, but, you know, they want to feel them to feel part of the family. I mean, anyone can call themselves a family. That That's easy, you know, but you have to act like a family to be, you know, to have true integrity. So... Is there any relationship with WTC? Like, do you guys have any type of relationship? Or like, obviously, you're both competition, so I can't imagine you're, you're you know, you're having hugs every night. But, but, do you? Is there any communication? Is there any type of relationship between the two companies? Well, you know, from our end, it's a very, very clear statement. We respect Ironman very, very much. It's a part of the legacy of the sport, and as you know, we are caring very much about legacy. All of the oldest races on five different continents are part of the Challenge family. But you know, in terms of dialogue, it's quite a quite a quite a difficult. You know, if you are 
as a global organization uh, forced to to fight legal fights uh, because uh, your races have been bought out of existing uh, contracts it's quite difficult from our end we are all in for development of the sport and this is from what, what we do and breathe and and think every day and uh, Hopefully the other party um, will will come back where they come from, and uh, it's really interesting because you know I'm getting very often uh, a simple question: what, what, What's Challenge Family is all about? And I'm telling one simple thing: Close your eyes, think about those things you love in triathlon, open your eyes, and you see Challenge. Simple explanation. So I suppose lastly, yeah, what's you, what's what's on the horizon? You know, like obviously we've got championship races coming up soon. We'll speculate when and where. Um, but you know, like, is, is it more just keeping on the same path, just keep on doing what you're doing, and just slow growth or not slow growth, but expanding the ways and keeping the philosophy? Or is there any any other exciting pieces of news you want to share? Well, most critical objective of Challenge Family is a, a, a quality leadership. We want to be a quality leader in a global scale. And of course, on the one hand, we have to develop our existing races who are already part of the Challenge Family and also de develop markets. So we have, we have a, you know, a strong plans for Asia. We have strong plans for North America, South America. There will be definitely few new introductions into the schedule for the next year. But we are extremely selective about that. As I have said, we have 160 requests on the table right now. So it's 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 kind of interesting period of time. So uh, definitely focus on athlete, focus on quality. That's our biggest objectives right now. Just last question, I suppose, for you, Vix, is, you know, like, again, nine years ago, were you part of the original Wanaka? No, I came on board the, the second year. So. You know, it was pretty small, kind of, you know, small fry then in comparison to what you guys are now. What's it been like to be a part of, uh, you know, this this kind of company that's grown from, you know, obviously have its amazing history and, and wrote and, uh, you know, and then to see Wanaka in the first year and then to be a part of it from the second year. What's it been like for you, just on a personal level, to kind of be a part of this? Uh, it's... I'm one of those annoying people that I love my job. I mean, and I'm not just saying that because my boss is sitting next door to me. <laughs> she needs to pay her eyes. <laughs> Thanks, Bevan. Um, no, it's, I mean, seriously, I remember, I can remember vividly um, when I went to Roth to meet Felix and to see the race for the first time. I think, I think I was here with you that year. I think. Yeah, actually, yeah, I did meet you then. I think that's when I first met you. And I remember standing in the middle of the stadium when you know what it's like at the end with the fireworks and the sparklers and the music and the emotion. It's just spine tingling. And I was standing and I was looking around and I was like, wow, this is one of those once in a lifetime experiences. If I don't do this, I am crazy. And I, and I, and I haven't looked back. I mean, it's been an amazing ride. It's, um, I think, yeah, so it's what, nine years um, now. And um, I mean, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't want for a better job, to be honest. Um, the, the guys, you know, Felix, Catherine, ZB, they're amazing people to work with. The people I've met, you know, during over the last nine years have been, you know, wonderful. I've got some great friends now in the triathlon industry. And, you know, and it's been amazing, you know, just going back to Wanaka. I mean, when I took over Wanaka, there was under 200 people. We now have 1,600 athletes. We have 500 children. Um, you know, racing and being a part of it. And, you know, God, it's a buzz. You know, I never tire from standing on the finish line. And some of the athletes you have a personal connection with because you've been emailing them, you've heard about their stories and what they're going through to get there. And then you get to welcome them across the finish line and you give them a hug. I'm most of the even crying because I'm a soft touch. But um, it is, it's really, it's so cool and it's such a privilege to be a part of it. It really is. 
Well, uh, thanks for your time today, and good luck for the future. It's obviously we believe it's important for our sport to have two. You know, I have someone against WTC, and you guys are doing a great job in that, and and uh, around the right kind of things about our sport. So keep up the good work, and we look forward to hear about these championship races. <laughs> Sponsor Athlinks.com. Athlinks social networking. So you're saying they have a week, John? You, you, did you claim your bad result? I will claim. I will have had to claim it. It hurts. Yeah, your average speeds would have dropped oh, back. No. Uh, you got to claim. What did you go? What did you go? What was your finish time? I think it was ten thirty-seven. Oh, I think I did ten forty here. Oh, really? <laughs> I think I, I think I did. <laughs> I think when I did, kind of. We did had 10. a much harder day than you. Oh, I listen to it. Those wins were horrendous. I ran at three thirty. So what did you run? <laughs> <laughs> what was your run time? I think it was four thirty. Oh, mate, like sharp it up. Yeah. Sharp it up. <laughs> so yes, I will have to claim that one, Athlinks. But it, it is uh, jokes aside, it is uh, it still helps you to remember those races. Oh yeah, you know you go back ten years time. I'll go back and going, I might have forgotten about that. Belinda can go. You go check out Athlinks, John. Do you want to go back and doing Hawaii? You go check Athlinks out. <laughs> Project so twenty twenty four. It is um, it is a great place to to store everything, and uh, so I love it. So I check. think I think one thing that's really important with Athlinks is, and John's really great at this, and it's something I didn't do as an athlete, and I wish I had is just getting in the habit of each time you do a race, just go and do it straight away. Mm. And that way, you know, it's just going to always be there. And sure, you, John will always going to remember his Kona races, but it's those smaller races. <laughs> I don't want to remember this one. <laughs> I'm really trying really hard to not remember it. <laughs> well, if you don't, don't put it in the end. But, but otherwise, you know, it's all those other races you don't do, you don't put in and you forget about. And, you know, five years from now, you'll be really glad you did. Let's check it out, athlinks.com. Jumbo, we're in. We've lost. We've lost the car keys. Dave's lost our car keys. Oh, well, two weeks ago. Take responsibility. <laughs> the car keys are missing anyway. But that was two weeks ago. Of course, of course, <laughs> it was too. So we have uh, with us one of the coaches uh, who's got plenty of athletes racing in Kona. His name is Muddy Waters. Who's legend? He can tell us a bit more about where he's from. So welcome along to the show, Muddy, and maybe just tell us a bit about where you're from. Well, I was born in Anchorage, Alaska. And then uh, relocated to California after the 64 earthquake. So now we're aging myself. Uh, and uh, was a, a, a high school athlete and got an education for free because of my athletics abilities. And then got into bicycle racing. And then I met this guy, Bob Babbitt, mm -hmm. and turned me on to triathlon in 1979. Uh, uh, wow. Speaking of earthquakes, because um, we're, we're quite experienced in earthquakes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, how big an earthquake was it? What's, uh, uh, I don't know anything about the 64 earthquake. Uh, 64 earthquake uh, on the Richter scale, it was a 9.6. It lasted for over five minutes. Yeah. I remember our house cracking in half. Yeah. The streets fell like 5th and 4th Avenue, dropped maybe 15, 20 feet. Yeah. Uh, it was it was the, the most powerful earthquake in uh in the U.S. history. So wait a second, how old were you then? I was eight. Wow, five minutes. That's pretty full on. That's very our, full on. Our, ours lasted for days, but they weren't, uh, no. the actual shocks were not five minutes long. And, sure. and it was on Good Friday, and I mean, we had aftershocks for weeks on yeah, 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 yeah. No, We know about that. <laughs> so, so your parents decided to leave just because of those two children? Yeah, my father and grandfather stayed, and they decided we'd go. My mom was from San Francisco. And so, well, there's another earthquake place. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then we wound up in San Jose, California, and uh, we, they, my parents had decided to leave us there for the time being. And then we wound up growing up. And then in 1976, my brother, younger brother, graduated from high school. I was just graduating from college, and they moved back to Anchorage. 
Wow. Yeah. Nice. So um, it was just a side topic. You mentioned well, earthquakes, <laughs> and uh, we're, we're interested in earthquakes. Um, so in terms of uh, triathlon in those early days, you know, you mentioned Bob Babbitt there and uh, back in the, the 70s and stuff. Well, um, I mean, it's obviously changed a lot, but what was the, the vibe like back then and, and what was your involvement? Oh, it was a lot of fun, a lot of camaraderie. Mm. Uh, I wound up moving to San Diego to be with Mark and Tinley and everybody. And then Scott Molina shows up and it was just, uh, it was really a small, a small group of people that had this addiction to exercise. Mm. And, uh, we just knocked the shit out of each other, mm. you know, two or three times a week. And, you know, we just, it was a lot of fun. We enjoyed it, you know. Did, did it disappoint? Uh, I mean, everything changes, but do you miss those times compared to, you know, you walk down a you drive these days and it's pretty full on, pretty intense, everyone's got all the gear and it's um and there's a lot more individuals out there does that disappoint you that you kind of lost a bit of that uh old school style oh absolutely uh but i keep my kids out of the scene they're allowed Mm. to do one loop of the expo Mm. uh go uh your kids are your athletes yeah yeah Yeah, he's got 50 they go get uh they go get uh their you know registration one of mine got pulled to get tested today so that was yeah. kind of fun age grouper or prior age grouper wow yeah mm. she's one of the favorites uh mm. so and that there was a guy in there that it won last year he was being tested in age grouper so you know i mean it's you know i mean it, she sent me a text she was all worried and i says oh she is that muddy love stuff see <laughs> <laughs> yes. it's good stuff but no to look back at the the history of being here i've been here 26 straight years and everybody's just all dressed up to no, yeah. with nowhere to go everybody wants to be seen and 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 really enjoy the 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 history of this and i went over to germany this year and i got the bug back for triathlon because it was refreshing it was fresh it was it was a different vibe and there was a lot of love yeah. and uh, it was it was really cool it was really cool which is ironic really because the germans as as a culture gets a hard time for being you know kind of a stiff kind of not that friendly culture but i know when i did we've both done road and i know when i did road the germans couldn't have been lovelier like mm. everybody i experienced were just and wrote so it gets what the sport's about, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And and I, I met this gentleman, Felix, who's yeah. actually the owner, yeah. and he courted me quite a, quite a bit. But, of course, I was with Bob Babbitt. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, but, it, no, I, it was refreshing to me. And mm. uh, I've never seen 200,000, 300,000 people on a course before either. Yeah. Mm. And that was just, oh, I still get the goosebumps. It was just fantastic. So to take a step back here, you have the history. It's, it's Kona. And it's the most powerful race in the world, uh, but it's it's just Hawaii. There, there's other things starting to happen, and and I think it's good for uh, long distance triathlon. Well, well one of, I was speaking to someone at the expo today, uh, just an age grouper who's racing this week, and he was saying one of the really fascinating things. He's it's his first time here, and he's saying. The pros are lovely. You know, like you, when you get to meet a pro, they've all been really lovely, responsive, open, really great. It's actually the age groupers here that are far too serious and, and disconnected to each other in the experience. Your thoughts on that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, they, they, that's their identity. Mm. And, you know, you try to ask them, you know, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a triathlete. No, no. What do you really do? Mm. Well, I'm, I dabble. I'm a software engineer. Mm. So that, that's their whole identity. They get so wrapped into it. But those are the ones that will leave as quick as they got into it because 
they're, they're so worried about what everybody else is thinking. And that's one of the things that I really emphasize with my athletes is don't read a bunch of crap. Mm-hmm. You know, it's people cut, cutting and pasting and, and it's, it's not a lot of their ideas, you know, just go have fun and, you know, just enjoy yourself. And I think that's what brings out the best in the kids. You know, we just came off, we did a 10 day camp in Tahoe for our, our Kona build and we just have a blast, you know? And so you come here and everybody's kind of chesty. So, you know, we're not at Digme Beach, we're at the pool swimming, you know, yeah. as soon as they open. And, you know, because the, the reality is, is when this thing's over on Saturday, the world's going to keep turning. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, it really is. And I'll get ready for Arizona. <laughs> yeah. And uh, my kids will leave here at peace with whatever the outcome is. That's usually really good. But we understand that this is just, we're fortunate to do it. Yeah. So in, in terms of your coaching, um, <clears throat> how has that changed? Again, you know, if we, we've, you've worked over a very long period of time. Um, I guess if we look at the actual physical side of things first, how has that changed as you've grown as a, an athlete, a coach, and as a person as you've seen the sport develop? Um, and, or has it changed much? Uh, it, it has in some some in, in, a lot, in a lot of perspectives. I think the tools has changed the sport maybe to a fault, uh, I'm an old school guy. I use them a little bit, but I think people don't get to their fullest ability because they're letting a tool control them. Uh, we may on Saturday, we may go by heart rate or power for 40 miles on the bike and that's it. Mm. You know, they know where they're at. So we real my emphasis is, is to really get to know your body and understand it. And, you know, back in the days when we were doing this, I mean, we, it was a mono a mono and we, you know, and the times were consistent and faster. Mm-hmm. And so with all these tools, we're supposed to be going faster where you see a lot of drafting. And I think a lot of the drafting's caused because these kids are being taught, okay, your Ironman pace is 190 watts to 210 mm-hmm. and they're all doing the same thing. So they kind of bunch up, but I understand the tools. I think they're good at a time, but I you you need to enjoy yourself. You know, put your head up. Take a look at the coast, you know? Mm. I mean, really, you know, I just I don't know. I just think the more fun you have, and you can be competitive and have fun, but you know, most of these people are going home and trying to download and look at their numbers and stuff, and they're not cardiologists. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So, and they waste their time. And then, uh, and honestly, I have to, you know, I get myself in trouble with this, but a lot of times when people are trying to deliver these power numbers in workouts when someone's tired and they're just trying to do this periodization and the kids are trying to reach them and they get frustrated and they can't you know so i i i just think we need to go more by feel and really get to know our bodies if you're tired just don't do anything i tell the kids once once they get pretty comfortable with me it's okay to have to take a mental health day. Mm. You know what I mean? Because we only have so many good days in us a month anyway. Mm. You know, especially if you have the added stress of work and your family. And, and that's what I, you know, I talk, I talk to my kids all the time on the phone. Mm. And, uh, you know, people think I'm wacky doodle, but I'll tell you <laughs> what, nobody puts as many people on this starting line as I do. Mm. And that's all with fun and passion. And I've been doing this for 35 years and I'm still freaking in love with it you know mm. and i love these kids and you know i i'm i'm the luckiest guy in the world so i just i might be the wrong guy to be asking yeah so in terms of the, the training you do with you guys um is it a lot of group sessions or is it sort of personalized you go and do that you go and do that you go and do that uh yeah well i actually handwrite the program every week mm-hmm. uh coach barbara keys it and sends it right nice <laughs> i you know and uh so 
uh, we do about three or four sessions a week together if people mm-hmm. come into town or mm-hmm. I go visit them. But uh, yeah, I, I like the group set, set settings because I'm out there. I set up aid stations. I have a scooter. I, you know, I I can really get involved with everybody. And mm-hmm. and uh, so I'm so lucky because I call myself the CEO of this group of kids. Mm-hmm. And they're all my directors. And they are all helping each other because they already know where they stand in the pecking order. Mm-hmm. And, and so they're always giving a little bit of advice or, hey, slow down, hey, slow mm-hmm. down. And that's usually the, the key thing that's taught mostly is slow down a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, we still have three more hours out here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, 35 years as a coach is a long time. So how do you make a sustainable career out of it? Uh, I just love it. Yeah. I just love it. I've had groups of people want me to come talk to them and the coaches. And I go, I, you can't, I can't teach passion. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, it just it flows and these kids see it. And, you know, and it's not always right. You know, I've got 35 years of a lot of mistakes, and uh, but it's a progression. And if you if you build these relationships and not just being a, you know, a cut and paste thing or training peaks or whatever, uh, and 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 really putting your hands on the pulse and talking to them and having them send your heart rate and just, you know, I mean, most of these kids just need a good hug. You know, I'll laugh with them and I'll cry with them. And and uh, I'm just different. I'm not for everybody. That's for sure. But I've worked with some of the best in the world. And uh, I've learned a lot from them, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there a full-time gig for you? Yeah, I also mow lawns. Nice. <laughs> yeah, nice. 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 So I do coaching about 50 hours a week. Yeah. And I do gardening 18 hours a week. Oh, so you work a lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and in terms of your own fitness these days? Uh actually really good i i had some struggles last year i lost my mom Mm -hmm. uh and that was really tough on me and i actually gained some weight and uh i think the final straw was is i i can't was coming back from a race my wife picks me up she goes have you been drinking (laughs) and and so that started to become a pattern you sit at the airport you have four or five beers at nine bucks a piece that's expensive Mm -hmm. and i just kind of started letting myself go and then i just at christmas last year i just said you know what I, you know, I want to be an athlete and well, not an athlete, but I don't want to be a fat coach, but I, I want to live long for my wife, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, I just, I, I plan on doing this forever. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm 60 years old and, and I've got probably more energy than most. Oh, for sure. So when you, when you're laying out your programs for your athletes, um, you said you're not sort of the typical type of coach, but, um, how do you sort of come up with your week structures and, and your season plans and things like that? Okay, so what, what I do is, is I lay out, I give the kids a chance to figure out what races they want to do. Uh, and then we sit down and we talk uh, and, uh, and just figure out, okay, what is the goal this year? You know, is it maybe to get lucky enough to get here again? Uh, so let's find the proper course for you and set the rate, the right areas to train you know and and prepare yourself for that and it's a lot of times it's just a few little changes every week mm. uh and and i just i'm a big component of the hog or co- the bike a lot of my friends have harleys yeah and uh we ride the bike yeah uh, I, i'm i like five days a week running is what kills us that's where the injuries come from and my kids run really well off the bike so yeah. i just do key key sessions with the running and I bring it up when I think it's needed, and I stay away from it when I don't need it. Yeah. 
So when you five rides a week, typically what sort of volume are you, is your average person doing? You know, is it five rides of two hours? Are you, do you like them going out for 100-mile rides? Uh, it depends where we're at our block of training. Ba- basically, it's a couple comp, uh, compu trainer rides, mm-hmm. uh, an hour, two hours, just keeping the hip flexors, abductors going, just mm-hmm. muscle memory. Uh, we usually do an intensity ride on Wednesday. Uh, it could be one on Friday too, and then come back with a long endurance ride mm-hmm. on Saturday. Uh, and, and it just, it's just a varies in, in the cycle where we're at. So for example, from January, February, March, that's all we're doing is riding and some swimming. Mm-hmm. Um, can I ask, uh, you, you, mentioned you beforehand, you coached Rudy, uh, yes. WMPT, who's who did he did this race? Didn't it? he didn't complete it the first time, then came back the second time, didn't he? Was that what happened? Here? Uh, yes. So I was at at the airport in just leaving Kona, and I get a call from Bob Babbitt, uh, and he calls me up because can you get Rudy ready in six weeks to do Arizona? Because he missed the cutoff here. That's right. Yeah. And uh, we were here that year, weren't we? Mm, yeah. yeah. And so I said, okay, well, he's got to move up with me. So and then I had to, you know fixed the bike and, and I figured out immediately that everything's going to be with his glutes and his core and his hip flexors. Uh, so we just attacked that. And, and if you could just see what this kid goes through is just unbelievable. So there's a lot of, you know, ice, uh, just the recovery is so important. And, and so you're limited on how many days this kid can go. Mm. Uh, but he's, He's such an athlete. He's so tough, uh, maybe to a fault. Yeah. Mm. And have you ch- um, coached many challenge athletes? Yeah, uh, Sarah uh, uh, with uh, CIF and Scout. Uh, mm. uh, Sarah for Arizona two years ago in Kona, and Scout uh, basically did some work. They wanted to. They wanted me to see if she would be able to do Kona, and so they sent her to me for. Four weeks, I wrote up a report and said no, she she wouldn't make it. Um, but uh, Bob, I has me do a lot uh, with athletes to kind of see if they have it or not. So can I ask, what are the different challenges with people like that? You know, because obviously most coaches will have the, their own philosophy and they'll have a way of approaching things. But and to the general population, there'll be tweaks around that. But you know, whereas a challenge athlete will present you with much different challenges. So what, how do you approach that? Uh, you're really careful because now you're worried about their stumps. They get infections, uh, sores, everything like that. And they're all cockeyed, especially mm. the ones with without, has one and not the other. Yeah. They're always, their hips are always whacked out. And so we work on running because they have that tendency to, to flip that thing. So I actually play with their prosthetics uh, and try to get them to get their hips underneath them and eliminate that. Uh, and then there again, core, glutes, core, glutes, just to, to strengthen all that stuff up and to make sure that they're not overstriding. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's the whole thing. And, you know, the thing about on the running, the leg will bounce back. We're on the bike. We can't get that. Mm. that was, that's also a tough thing. So you might get it if you're one leg no leg on the other side you still have one so you do have to keep your eyes on that and emphasize a lot of one-legged drills which i do with my regular athletes too we do a lot of drill stuff uh but you you've got to slow down take a look at what we have anatomy wise and say okay this is what i need to attack you just can't send them a program no no, of course not and that's what the some of these people try to do and they don't understand it so uh i'm 
you know, CAF's go-to guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you said you've, you know, you've been asked to go and do talks for, you know, coaches and what have you, and you sort of said, well, I can't teach passion. So, but what, what would you, if people are listening to this and they want to get into coaching, what is your advice? Uh, to learn how to coach from the Olympic distance and the sprint distance to doing your own research, but doing it your way and creating a workout that's efficient to them because nobody's really taken that time because uh, they don't have the experience. So they're taking ideas instead of sitting the athlete down and finding out just what their workload is, what they're really capable of doing. Most coaches, uh, I see this a lot. If an athlete really wants to go, they like that. And so they'll just keep adding it, you know, and so you, there's a risk there. And if someone doesn't have experience, they're more likely going to get hurt. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I just think it's better to just say, okay, let's, I'm new at this. You're, you know, I'm going to do the best that I can. I've done some research, but I really want to watch, you know, your progress. And we're going to do it slowly. With me, you have to be patient. And it's a three to five year process. What do you admire about the Ironman athlete? Because uh, we're a funny bunch. <laughs> yeah. Uh, some of them, most of them are very insecure. Uh, and when everything's going great, it's it's awesome. It's when they deal with, uh, with uh, failure. So, for example, I'll tell my athletes this. I... On a bad training day is as good as a, a good one sometimes. Embrace it, learn from it, understand it. But that is the key thing. Every, everything's exciting when everything's going good. It's when it's not going good, let's see how sharp the coach is or where the athlete's head is. You know, But it, they're too worried about everybody, what they're saying, instead of, wait a minute, go look in the mirror because this is you decided to do this. And so, yeah, and most people... If they would just slow down, they'd be more successful and they'll stick around a long time. Mm. Um, so you, if people want to follow you, it doesn't sound like you're much of a f- Facebooker or Twitter or anything like oh, that. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, we have a Facebook thing now. <laughs> and laughing in the background. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and then uh, one of my athletes put up a, uh, uh, what do you call, a website? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, our website. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You are high tech, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and it's out there, you yeah. know, but it's, I mean, I don't, I don't show, you know, what I've done here. I've had 17 age group world champions and over yeah. 30 podiums here. Yeah. But who cares? You yeah. know, it's not, it's not about me. It's about them. And, and I don't want to sell myself on results. I want to sell them on getting to know me and seeing if we can make this work. Mm. Well, it seems to me that for you, it's, it's that through the, the time with you, they become better people. Yes, yeah. 100%. Yeah. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's so key. You know, I, I had a kid I worked with in uh, 2002. He says, hey, can we do something together? And uh, I said, Okay. And I said, you got to move in with me. And he was, uh, it was a lot of fun with this kid. And uh, we had a good time together a couple times. His name was Craig Walton. Mm. Uh, I don't know if you remember yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he changed, you know, and, and he came from the man, you know. Uh, so uh, it's, it's just teaching these kids that, you know, there's more to this than just coaching them. It's really, you know, helping them get through there. Because the better I know you, 
the better I'm going to answer the, the training. You know, some people don't want to get that close. Some people only want to be account, accountable to a piece of paper, but I'm a touchy feely guy. I want to laugh with you. I'm going to cry with you. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's not for everybody. So what's your plan on race day in terms of, um, you know, being out there and spectating and supporting the athletes as well as you can? Uh, pretty much everybody knows what they need to do. I have little points where we make contact to let me know what's going on. Uh, it's it's more about the run, mm, yeah. you know. You know, you ride for show and you run for dough. Yeah. Uh, and so I have a certain point, uh, just a little bit before Lehi Drive, where I, I'll talk to each every one of them and say, mm. "How's it going?" Mm. And they'll let me know. And if they say nothing to me, we're in a good place. Mm. So now my job is, I better slow them down, yeah. you know, because I hate when they come around and then get on Lehi Drive and hit all those people. Mm. I'll send there running in a minute, an hour faster, yeah. you know. And my whole philosophy is get to the top of Polani, and then you got 16 miles of up and down, and that's where the race is won and lost. Mm. Can, I, can I ask, with the, like, because you've been here, you know, 26 years, and you've been at sport pretty much from day one, were there significant moments where you go, wow, there's been a big shift? You know, like, you know, like, um, I remember when, we, when I came here, race 10 years ago. Aero bikes, you know, or, or TT bikes were just were pretty rare. Whereas, you know, then you come back five years later and it's, everyone's got TT bikes. We, you know, we, we, what, what were those key moments can you remember where you just notice, oh, things have stepped up? Uh, I think people taking it more serious and trying to find that next edge. Uh, and, you know, and look, you're bombarded in these magazines. I don't, they, have, they don't have articles anymore. They have advertisement. Yeah. Uh, so, and then people start talking and they ask and they start talking to somebody and say, well, what's the pluses and minuses uh, to this? And, you know, they're a great bike as long as you're fit properly. My whole philosophy is I don't care what it says on the down tube as long as I can fit it on you. Uh, but, yeah, I think, you know, people, once they learn how to ride the bike, then it makes a big difference. But it's – if you – Put some hoodoo the voodoo. I guarantee you, the triathlons will buy it for at least six or seven months before they know it doesn't work, yeah. right? What were those balance things? Remember those? Yeah, <laughs> yeah the balance bands. <laughs> I never wore one. I was proud of that. Yeah, <laughs> I never it, wore one. Exactly. So these, uh, this is the problem again. You know, everybody's looking for shortcuts, but yeah, it, it was a, a a big step. And really, if you're set up properly on a funny bike or a TT bike, uh, you're you're gonna save the hammies and and uh, you know you're gonna hit that big muscle group so you know it's it's just different now you people say well what if i ride a road bike that long ah you can but you're you're looking at a 72 73 seat stay from a maybe 79 to 80 you're really going to engage the hammies and the glutes right so and i do that's the only thing i'm certified in i me and danny and phil butt heads all the time we're yeah. buddies uh but you know and, and getting the cleats I think a lot of times the cleat position is really important too. Anybody can get the back end of the bike right. It's the box, the front end, and that's the million-dollar question. And something I did started doing four years ago, and I've seen a lot of it, I started bringing people up. Don't worry about aerodynamics. Comfort is power. And I, I do it all the time when I do fit. Just by power numbers, I see them. The more comfortable they get, they start going up. I start raising them up. They start getting comfortable. Plus, a lot of times you're at this long stuff. I think people are cutting off their lower extremity and their digestive system was a little screwed up. And uh, there again, too, you're going to you're gonna see less of that because people are realizing that we need to drink more water instead of all the sugar products. Mm-hmm. And uh, like my kids, they're drinking Pedialyte. So, uh, you know, I mean, 
you're, it's going to revolve all the time, but I don't know how much more they can change a bike, you know? Mm. I mean, seriously. And uh, so you can get in the wind tunnel all you want. Bottom line is just work on the motor. Yeah. D- don't worry about the hog. Yeah. Oh, it's been fun having this, um, yeah, this discussion, Marty. We appreciate it. And uh, congratulations on – I know it's all, it's all about the athletes for you, but you know you've, you've got plenty of athletes here, so well done on that. And uh, we hope they go out there and kick some butt – on Saturday. Well, hopefully they have. Hopefully they have. Yeah, I'm sure they have. I'm sure, I'm sure you've dominated. So. <laughs> Thanks for your time. Oh, it, it'll it'll be great. And uh, thank you guys. Uh, I just met you today, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm very pleasured. It's an honor for me to just be here with you guys and be on this island. You know. Cool. Thanks, mate. Appreciate thank it. Thank you. Sponsor John Coffees of Hawaii Oh tell me about it Oh Jen's sitting over there She was just saying to me Before she saw in town Some uh, coffee beans Covered in chocolate And she was Pumped to try to go And get some of them Coffees of Hawaii Got them Tell you what Get the hookups Get the hookups You know what you do When you get your order you get a cap because I've talked about this in the past. Porno has the the visor, and the mm-hmm. visor is cool. Head sweats, good quality. Yeah, it's head sweats, and it's cool kind of green. It's mm-hmm. kind of cool color. And then you get your coffee, obviously, mm. but then you get the coffee beans, mm. maybe even a coffee cup, yeah. t-shirt. Yeah, <laughs> you can't go wrong. Yeah, buy buy one of everything on the site. Yeah, there's a deer. So get yourself get coffee. As we even said, slap on some coffee beans, chocolate covered coffee beans in there, and also just support the guys that are a big part of the show and a big part of the the Kona experience. You know that coffee boat is heaving with people, yeah. and it wouldn't be the same just to go for a swim in Hawaii without coffees of Hawaii. Out there. So give them some support, give them some love. Check it out, coffeesofhawaii.com. Okay, so Jumbo, so this is pretty much us for this week. So again, we we haven't really talked about any news or stuff like that because we're still on holiday. Uh, we will be back next week in the studio, so we'll kind of cover everything that's been happening over the last week. Any just love final thoughts from Hawaii? Um, I'd just like to encourage people to spread the word on this clean protocol thing. I just think it's just mind-blowing. Mm. I just think it's absolutely brilliant idea about actually trying to work on people's headspace a bit. Uh, and no. I think the nice thing for them is in, in this form of media, they can actually sit down there, like it was a good conversation for them. I think they've had a bit of strife. Mm. And sometimes text and, you know, trying to describe things gets a little bit lost. And, you know, they've got the right intentions. You know, sure, there's probably evolution to make their product better, but, you know, they're in a, going, doing the right kind of work. Loving it. Loving it. So, I always say last thoughts from Kona is every year we come back and every year you just speak to people and they just love the experience. Mm. Kona, you, it's got the aura, it's got the prestige and, 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 you know what they deliver here mm. you know WTC will give them a hard time when they need it but in Kona Kona week not just race day just everything about the experience everyone loves it and I will say that one of the things that we have been scathing of in the past is the post race area for food and yep. whilst I didn't get to experience anything because nothing could stay down uh, they looked like they had a pretty good spread on so they yep. obviously listened to some feedback there which is great and yeah I would say fantastically well organised event Yes, there's some things I'd like to see changed and improved, but on the whole, it's uh, yeah, they do a great job. Yeah, so yeah, we'll, uh, we'll be back in the studio. Andrew Messick gets a lot of grief, but you know, I was walking through transition, he came over and gave me a slap on the shoulder and wished me luck and stuff, so he's, I think he's a good guy. It's funny what I was thinking about just quickly the other day. Um, the thing about, he's almost like a sports star. Mm. Not, not as in like his ego or anything, but like sport, I always think it must be so. Imagine if every day someone was watching you do your job, judging you. Yeah. You know, like, oh, John, the way you're using your computer is absolute <laughs> crap. You suck at this. And, and that's the life of the sports star. You have everyone watch you do your job, and everyone has an opinion. Yeah. And it's interesting that he's in that position with his job, mm. that everyone's going to give, you know, everyone's scathingly cr- critical mm. of him. Now, 
definitely there's times when he's not sharp and he needs to improve and there's things he's done really well and uh, you know I'm sure he, there'll be areas he thinks he could do better and there's this you know, jeepers, we could have a big discussion on this, but, but we're he's still to, human. We've got to go to Turtle Beach. Yeah, we've got to go to Turtle Beach, <laughs> so we'll talk about that next week. But he is human, and he's actually quite, you know, he's, he's quite a nice guy when you actually yeah. one-on-one off him, isn't he? Yeah. So. I'm Russ. I'm Indo. Train hard. Train smart. Kia kaha. There we go, girls.